It's time for Extra and Local Candidates on Tuesday, May 19th. Oregonians will take their turn in the primary season. In Portland, four of the five city council races will be decided, including the mayor's seat. That means four of the five votes on city council are up for election. Today, we're going to hear from candidate Sarah Iannarone, who is running for mayor of Portland, a founder of Arletta Library Bakery Cafe, faculty at the Wayfinding Academy, and a founding staff member of First Stop Portland at PSU. Sarah, welcome. Hi, Jefferson. Happy election season. Who are you? Why are you running? Well, as you said, my name's Sarah Iannarone, and you're one of the few people who said it right on the first try, so thank you very much for that. I don't know if it was the first try. It was the first try today. (laughs) First try today. Well, hey, that's pretty good. I think I might have had it on the first try even long ago, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you are good. Um, You know, I'm a mom. I'm a community leader. I've owned a successful business in town. I'm an educator. I'm an urban planning and policy wonk. My job for the last 10 years at Portland State University was hosting civic leaders from around the world who came to study um, why is Portland a good place to live, or at least why do you have that reputation? And in that time, I had the good fortune of engaging with a lot of people who asked me hard questions, both from here and abroad. What's working? What's not in Portland? And over the past decade, what we've seen is a lot of talk about Portland being a good place to live, but not a lot of rubber hitting the road in terms of realizing some of our more progressive values. So I- Always growing up most. Equity and equitable prosperity and shared prosperity and making sure that as we make investments for a more sustainable future, that that is not accruing to just a small swath of Portlanders, but that that's more equitably. Where is the mayor screwing up in equity priorities? I don't Unless know. you're saying he's doing a great job. And if you are, then my question is, why are you running? Is it about priorities or is it about outcomes? I don't know that in terms of priority alignment and outcomes is where we're seeing the gains, right? It's about how do your budgets align with your priorities, where are your expenditures? So you're, you're saying you're not sure if it's a priority problem or an outcome problem? He, I'm saying that he says it's a priority, but when you look at outcomes, Got it. I don't see there being a difference made. So we have to hold our elected officials accountable when we think we should be making progress in areas that we're not or we're talking about things but we're not realizing them. Vision Zero is a perfect example, right? We keep talking about People not dying on the streets. Exactly. People not dying in the streets. The goal of a policy like Vision Zero is to reduce traffic deaths ultimately to zero is the model. And you do that through strategic infrastructure investments, education, uh, transportation, um, uh, enforcement, traffic enforcement. And we actually saw the highest number of deaths on Portland streets last year than we've seen in a long time. So if we're doubling down... I think it's a combination. When you look at the number of people moving here and you look at the amount of people who commute by the various modes, whether it's transit or bicycle or walking or driving, you look at the number of people commuting, the rates of people commuting by those active transportation modes, they're relatively flat. So most of the people who are moving here are staying in their cars. So the roads are congested. I don't know that people who are new to Portland understand the rules of, say, pedestrian priority. We're seeing an influx of big automobiles, SUVs, are increasing pedestrian deaths around the country. And we're not addressing that head on. And so this is a place where you see a disconnect, right, between traffic safety and outcomes. So what should the mayor have done or what would you as mayor do that you fear that Ted Wheeler won't do if given a second term? I don't feel like the current mayor puts our money where our mouth is. A good example being homelessness. Well, right. I want to stick I want to stick, oh, on, want traffic stick deaths, on traffic deaths, right? You're saying, well, more more people are dying in cars. Some would argue that that is the fault of the people in cars who are getting killed. Some would argue that was 
some systemic challenge. Other people might argue it's some combination. What's the mayor doing wrong or what would you do right to address that? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't make Vision Zero a policy priority that I trot out when it's convenient and then not put any investments or energy behind it. That's the point when you ask me for an example of where yeah, I no, see a disconnect. Yeah, no, it's a good example. It's, I think it's fascinating. Um, and so what you have to do if you're going to say that you care about something like Vision Zero. Do you care about it? I do care deeply about it. So then what should it. we do about it? I think that we should align the transportation budget with it. Right now, when you look at how the transportation budget um, plays out in reality – a good portion of the investments don't go toward Vision Zero. A lot yeah. of things... What are we spending on that we shouldn't be spending on? I don't know that it's what we shouldn't be spending on. It's not on polite that. to say, but that's the deal, right? Either it's going to be more money or you're going to be changing from something to something else. Well, there are also places where we could be um, collecting money that we don't collect. We give, away, we give away an awful lot of free parking in this city. Okay. Right? The automobiles still, whether it's the storage of the personal automobile in the public right-of-way, many people who own single-family homes and neighborhoods across the city believe that they're entitled to the asphalt on the other side of yeah. the curb in their house. Oh, yeah. No, the sidewalk in front of your house. That's my sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. That's my street. Yeah. I get to park my car there. If somebody, and I will say, I felt it. If somebody parks their car in front of my house, that's all right. But if somebody parks their car in front of my house, like a bunch of days in a row, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. That's my house. I'm supposed to be able to park there. And so you have to ask yourself, if we're talking about climate action and you look at one of the fastest growing um, sources of emission when we're actually supposed to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions and they're on the rise is from transportation. So we're basically... So you want a toll? You want to, you, want to put a, you want to put a parking meter on residential streets around Portland? I think that we have to evaluate what are the trade-offs that we're making by allocating so much of our city area to asphalt and private Automobiles. I, I hear that. And I still want to answer. I, I still am curious about your thoughts. Does that mean that we put a meter or some other way to charge, put in some little internal car GPS monitor to charge people for parking too long in front of their own house or in front of, on a residential street? No, but there are districts where you could actually have yeah. – we're working on district pricing. We have something called transportation demand management that could be more widely applied around the city. There's something where you think about affordable housing and how much parking we have to potentially supply where we're trying to build housing. And if we're thinking about, well, what are the trade-offs when you think about the things that we need in urban space, right? We want to use the land to build housing on. We need to use some of that space to plant trees. When you think about the fact that we're facing a climate crisis and urban tree canopy is one of the most effective, efficient mechanisms for making sure that our people are cool in the summer. It helps us with stormwater management. It helps us ameliorate um, things like urban heat island impacts so that we can... I learned ameliorate when I was prepping for this, AT. Keep going. <laughs> um urban heat island impacts. If we maybe didn't have to have all of this parking in the street, could that be planted with trees? I have this policy that I put forth in my Green New Deal called um, curbside canopy, right? Do we really want it? What do we want to do? Store private automobiles or plant trees? These are, these are things that happen in the public right of way, not even on the private property. And so does that mean that the property owner could pull that, that building that they're building for housing? further out. I, these are the trade-offs that I think that we need to be talking about, right? What, and what? you don't think the mayor is going to be talking about those trade-offs? I don't think he takes bold action on making them happen. When we when we look at... How come? I mean, that, maybe that's asking you to be his, his armchair psycho psychologist. Maybe that's not fair. But how come you think he doesn't? I don't know that the incumbent listens to the same people that I listen to on a day-to-day -day basis. Who does he listen to? Who do you listen to? I believe that he listens to the people in the PBA. He probably listens to his neighbors in the West Hills. 
He probably listens to people in City Hall that he passes by day to day. He certainly doesn't come out to my neighborhood or hang out with my neighbors at the Portland Mercado on a day-to-day basis. He's not trying to ride the bus on 82nd Avenue. He's not trying to live car-free out in East Portland and figure out how he's going to get to work. It's tricky. It doesn't work for Portlanders right it's now. It's real tricky. It's, no, I mean, this is one of my, one of my least favorite, I was going to say favorite talking points, but it's a thing that bums me out, is normally if you have more children and more seniors and more people below like median income levels, you would predict higher use. All those factors would, would indicate higher use of public transit. We see lower public transit east of 82nd Avenue, east of Mount Tabor, but it's not particularly surprising because we're, you know, what bike lanes are you using? Where are you going to walk to, right? Are you going to go over to Home Depot and put a fridge on your back and bike it across in your bicycle? But it's not even that. I mean, as someone who resided car-free in East Portland and was happy to ride my bike, yeah. I lived there for three months before I stopped riding my bike, yeah. right? We haven't made it even safe enough that, you know, automobiles on those strodes, as we call them, which are these wide roads that are almost like freeways across East Portland. Strodes? I didn't even know this word. You didn't even know this word? I didn't strode? even know the word strode. Oh, my goodness. Now you know a new word. You knew ameliorate, but now you know strode. No, because it wasn't on any test that I had to study for. I don't know. I was supposed to read things and learn that way. What's a strode? Is a wide street? It's they, one of those, like, when you think fast? about Stark at like 148th or 122nd in division. No, Gleason, Halsey, Stark, they're Burnside, all they're all there. pretty much roads. And especially if it's not congested, right? Yeah. In some ways, this is where, so these automobiles are going through at 50, like these are freeways. Well, we've also concentrated most of the affordable and multifamily housing there, especially naturally yeah. occurring affordable housing there. So you have, these are people's neighborhood streets. And someone who lives at maybe 23rd and Clinton, right? versus someone who lives at 123rd and Division, that's both their residential street, but we treat those completely separately. And we give we apply different policy priorities. Well, we have more people living out in East Portland day after day, and they are transit dependent, and they are walking. So why aren't the investments in safety concentrated there and saying, how can we make sure this elderly person living at 136th and Gleason can get to their health care provider or... Yeah. No, something that drives my dad nuts is uh, is they obviously spent a bunch of money, spent a bunch of time creating some, I don't know, little island thing on the corner of uh, the intersection of 21st and Tillamook, and the, uh, and he, and which is where I grew up, it's the family home. And he's like, we don't need that. But his, but I'm proud of him because his frustration is they should be spending that money, you know, a place where people are dying from getting run by, over by a car. And I don't think that's here. And that's exactly it. And so even this year on the budget committee, what we did when I'm on the PBOT budget advisor committee, we actually made them put an overlay of the traffic deaths this year, those 50 traffic deaths on the map of the investments to look and say, if we were spending money to address this, if those had been 50 gun deaths, think about how we would be deploying the Portland police differently. If those had been 50 children who had died on playgrounds, how would the parks department be behaving differently? Why do we accept these deaths? And I mean, it is... You have to look at it by the numbers in those ways and then try to solve for X. And I don't think talking about Vision Zero versus, wow, look at how many of those deaths last year were even in East Portland. And what's the likelihood that you'll be involved in a traffic death in Those most Portland. of them. Yeah. A good number. And then along. I, no, I think it's don't... usually, the last time I've seen maps, it's not just a good number. It's most. It's most. It's like, it's, it's a, even though it's not a majority of the city, it's not a majority of the population, not a majority of the geography, it is a majority of the traffic deaths, although I haven't seen the data for last year. And we have to think about it too. I use a term that I would actually like to see more widely used, which is actually called the crescent of disinvestment. Because 
it's easy and convenient for us to think of this hard line of wherever people have it. Well, I like that. That's good because that includes like Lombard and then also gets north Portland. I think it goes all the way around the Columbia Slough up into – it's moving further and further east. The but let's crescent say, of disinvestment. Right. almost rhymes. I, I'm good it's at brilliant. this. You see, this it's is brilliant. why you should vote for me. It's Not brilliant. only is she policy brilliance, but <laughs> this is my freestyling right here, policy freestyle, right. crescent of all disinvestment. Right. Um, but you go all the way around the Columbia Slough. We may take that clip out and repeat it over and over again, but go on. <laughs> you can do that. You have it for the article. Um, you go out the Columbia Slough, probably 82nd Avenue, but maybe 122nd. And then, but then you have to think down where my folks live here in Brentwood, Darlington, which has the nickname, you know, Felony Flats or Methlehem, where there's also no sidewalks, right? And that goes almost down to like the 40s, right? We're not even talking 140th. We're sure. talking like 40th. And um, it's the county line really with Clackamas. And then you've got places like 82nd Avenue where in some places you've got a Fred Meyer in the corner and then 100, Do you have a map that shows it? The Crescent of Disinvestment? Yeah. In my head. <laughs> you want me to draw it out? Or I mean, not, you know, we could hold it up close to the mic. I don't know if that'd help anybody, but it might actually be useful to, I would find it interesting to see a map and particularly if there was any, you know, if there's any data that backed it up, right? Is any, oh, this is where we've seen more tra- traffic deaths. And I, and the reason I say I started getting into maps as an East Portlander, because I started looking at a bunch of maps. And one of the maps I looked at was, in fact, traffic deaths. Mm-hmm. It was one of the things that got me into this mess when I got when I got sort of ticked off. I was, I was a happier person as a younger person. I got sort of ticked off. Optimism. And, and it really was. It really was looking at traffic deaths because I looked at a map of the traffic deaths in Portland. And, and I went to this transportation forum and I went and I said, oh, what are these stickers? And he said, oh, those are the traffic deaths. And I counted the stickers. And I think I counted 32 stickers and 21 of them, I think, were East 52nd Avenue. And that was, or including 82nd Avenue, so 82nd Avenue and East. And that's not where two-thirds of the people live. That's not even where two-thirds of the cars are. Right. And and I got kind of ticked off. And then I looked at another map. And that map was where uh, big donors lived. And I looked at the, I think it was Fundrace was the was the website. And you could see who had given federally $1,000 or more to a presidential candidate. Right. And I looked at that map. And you know how many little stickers were there? I think two. Yeah, East yeah. 52nd Avenue who'd given four digits. And probably in Glen right? Fair, somebody by the golf course. And I think and I think zero, I think zero were to John Kerry, Barack Obama. And you map that to like where people listen to power. And that's where I think your point of like, oh, he's not hanging out with me near the Mercado. Uh, does it matter, or maybe why does it matter that Ted Wheeler is accepting five and ten thousand dollar contributions, or why does it matter that you're running with public financing? Hey, well, you have to ask yourself why he thinks it's important that he needs to have those first of all. And when we talk about those traffic it saves debts, time, his argument I think would be it saves time. Instead of going, you know, person by person, I can I can go out. I will say a good friend of mine who is in the legislature, whose politics I share in many respects, said, you know, one of the reasons I like big contributions if I get a ten thousand dollar contribution that saves me a hundred conversations conversations that where I'm asking for $100 and allows me to do policy work, reach out when I'm not asking for money, et cetera. What it allows you to do is bad policy work. I mean, that's where the disconnect with Wheeler is. He's not, I don't see those hundreds of conversations. For us, we're at like 1,700, 1,800 donors right now. Those folks come and they talk to me via email, via social media. They come to our events. I learn from them. That's not a burden. 
that's a benefit that's going to make me a better mayor. Because if I'm only listening to Vanessa Sturgeon and she writes me a $5,000 check and now she's in a labor dispute because we made an agreement and gave Who's her- Who's Vanessa Sturgeon, Sturgeon? Who's Vanessa Sturgeon? So she's the developer of Park West adjacent to Director Park. And when she wanted to build that building, the city gave her what's called an FAR bonus, right? So she could help her project um, the math add up in terms of the development costs. I'm trying not to get into the jargon here, but the- Jargon is fine. <laughs> we, as long as you define jargon, this is where people can listen to it. Right, yeah. this is where we can get the jargon. The whole right. point of why we do this is so that you know, if you have a three-minute interview on coin, you don't you can skip the jargon. But here we can get into that crap. So- I love you, Jefferson. This is why I love you. Okay, so so that they can get their pro forma to pencil, which means all those numbers to align between the inputs of all the materials that they have to buy and the labor to get this steel and glass skyscraper built. Um, the city transferred to them some bonuses so that they could build that four stories higher, right? And the the trade-off for them being able to do that was that they would give some money to the parks, right, for the systems development charges, and they would agree to hire a unionized janitorial and security. Well, now, when you think about the union that represents those people, you think there's unionized janitorial and security in that building? No. So the union is now suing the city. Well, should the union be suing the city or should the mayor be working with that person to say, hey, why aren't you keeping to your agreement in terms of the unionized janitorial and security that you promised when we gave you this public benefit, right? The public owns that FAR, that airspace that we gave to that developer. That was a public. We as Portlanders own that. And it was given to this private person to benefit. And we're not collecting on that public benefit back. Well, she writes Ted Wheeler a $5,000 check. That's one check. Life is easy for you. I can listen to a lot of union members who write And your concern is that, that, was, that, that the uh, disinclination of the current administration to make sure that there is a unionized labor force and that janitorial staff feels too closely linked to the campaign contribution he received. I don't want to go so far as to say it's corruption, but it depends on who you have, whose ear you have. My campaign director uses this analogy because he's got uh, toddlers at home. You know, he listens to the kids programming day after day after day, and it starts to make your mind go a little buggy, you know, like, I don't even know my kid's 20. But if you listen to that enough, it starts to become reasonable, right, when you're listening to toddler music or toddler songs. If you're listening to the same people tell you the same things over and over again, then that's the story that you have in your head. Those are the values that you espouse. That's the narrative that you share. And the narrative that I share is the one that questions who's benefiting from development in Portland as we are building tens of thousands of square feet of commercial space across this city based on the good place that people like you and I have invested in with our civic activism over time, with our tax dollars, with our neighborhood Friends of Trees planting, with our advocacy for good bike lanes, with our advocacy for public transit. That's what makes this place ripe for development. And if we're not capturing that public benefit and treasuring it and fighting for it, who will? No, I will say, just to amplify, it drives me nuts when I see when I see all the cranes and my friends at home and say, oh yeah, these aren't these aren't Portland cranes, or at least the money that's paying for them is not Portland money. This is uh, this is BlackRock. This is you know major investors elsewhere. And I think about all the activists who, before I was born, when I was a small child, were like working until their knuckles bled to make sure we had awesome parks and people weren't dying in the roads. And they're not the people getting all the benefit from all of their work, right? Some some other investor is getting the benefit from it. And think about the hard fought, like gains that we've had, things like the Mount Hood Freeway and things like uh, Harbor Drive and even clean air. Look at our air quality and look at all the externalities that we as Portlanders are bearing. And I don't want to be uh, 
reinforcing this notion of xenophobia that newcomers aren't welcome because I want someone, whether they're an economic refugee or a climate refugee or a political refugee or a programmer from the Bay Area, you should feel welcome here. But what we need to do is get you engaged, right, and get you educated so that you understand what it takes to make a good place because what it is not is uh, giving away of the good place to profit seeking, but a nice compromise between economic prosperity for all, making sure that the private sector is prosperous. Uh, You've been running, you've talked about on the campaign trail climate change. You've also talked about Vision Zero. You've talked about priorities in transportation, your view on I-5 expansion and the Columbia River crossing. And if you quibble with those, what you would do instead, how you deal with them. You know, Jefferson, you're such a big political thinker, and I would actually love your thoughts on this too. Where is the vision for that corridor for the future, even since the first Columbia River crossing failure? Like, where is that conversation happening between the state of Oregon, the counties that are involved, and the cities that are involved that says, hey, let's think about this for a minute. Once upon a time, we did long-range planning, right? That's the whole point of creating a whole new government like Metro, where we said, Urban sprawl is going to destroy our way of life. Let's create this whole institution, a brand new government, to help us manage growth. And we're going to we're going to invest in this, and we're going to create this structure, and then we can integrate our land use and transportation planning to meet our goals. It's in our DNA in terms of urban urbanism, right? When we started thinking about the path of good city building fifty years ago, that was the path that we took. When you look at how we let things go now, it's so ad hoc. Where's the conversation about we need to make radical, rapid transformation in our systems? And where can we make the greatest gains? Transportation is a huge one. Housing adjacent to that transportation is another one. Making sure we're thinking critically about jobs and education centers in that scheme, which we've left out of the equation, but Metro's starting to pick up on. The role of Portland in that is to say, we're the regional center. We're here. We're the epicenter. What are these investments going to look like? Meanwhile, you have lower albina and the albina vision. And where is this as part of this concerted strategy in terms of what is it going to look like to connect our region's economy? Our well, I think, you put your finger, I think you put your finger on it. That The question that was, and in the midst of buttering me up, the uh, the uh, the question that was asked at the dawn of the Columbia River Crossing, I think was part of the problem, which even in the poll question they asked belied the problem, which was, do you want a bridge or not? Right. Would you like more or would you like less? Well, I'd like more. Not asking the question, what you want your community to be? What are your highest priorities? If you want to rank the following six things, transportation, investments, or otherwise, what they not asking about an overall idea, but just asking yes or no on a project. I think it's whether we say ad hoc or myopic or or project-based, or you know, you, you start with a political analysis, start with a power analysis, and you talk to, I don't know, some folks in the building trades and they say, Well, we need is some construction jobs, because like the recession is in the midst of it, and it's 2007, it's 2008. We need some construction jobs right now. And so then what? We put in a plan that still is not in, in, is still not implemented in 2020 because the plan for that probably needed to be put 10 years prior to that. But you just start, how are we going to get these transportation jobs? Let's use some transportation money and not thinking in terms of community development. And to quote a governor who did not enact what I'm talking about is that the head of ODOT shouldn't be the head of transportation, but we needed ODOT to be more of a community development organization and less than just a highway building organization. As mayor, how do you move in the direction of trying to be more... Uh, 
try to have the region think think either bigger or think bolder or just think broader. I'm doing it right now. That's why I joined the No More Freeways Coalition. Not in my city are we going to drop what I already called BS on the $500 million price tag from day one. Because if you have any sense of how those kind of infrastructure projects go down, you knew that was going to be $750 million or a billion if it was going to be a penny. So we called that and we said, no, this is not how we're going to spend these precious dollars. Do you realize the traffic investments that... ODOT's trying to sell that to our people as a safety project. You and I just talked about East Portland. You know what $500 million or $750 million could do for East Portland? Save a lot of lives. It would save lives. Lives. And so you want to have a conversation about freight movement? Let's have a conversation about freight movement and let's problem solve for freight. You want to have a uh, problem solve for congestion? Then let's have a conversation about congestion and solve for congestion. You want to have a conversation about workforce mobility? Then let's have that. But where is the leadership in Portland where our knowledge, where our expertise? I mean, it's my people. People in the community that we've been working on this project that found the flaws in ODOT's math. They're the ones that found the flaws in ODOT's planning. They're the ones that found the lever that the mayor could pull right now in parks so that you gave could a, stop this project. So you gave a great answer, but I'm not sure you answered my question in terms of what would you do about the – I have a broader vision I heard, and then I have more than that. What would you do about the IVAB expansion? Do it, not do it, do something different. What would you do about the Columbia River Crossing? How would you engage in those questions? But I guess what I'm saying is I would do exactly what I'm doing right now before I'm even in the mayor's office. Yeah. I would be using my bully pulpit from Portland to say, hey, not in our city. This is right. not how we do things. We think more carefully. We look at the data. If we're going to call something a safety project, then we do that based on where the deaths are happening. Understood. You have to hold people accountable for their words, and then you have to hold them accountable for where they put the money alongside those words. So how do you connect this conversation about transportation priorities, et cetera, to the conversation we we're having just prior to that about money and politics? So let's say you're running for president, just hypothetically. Oh, good Lord. And, and, and what you've done with your life, what you've done with your life is you, were, you did work in the finance industry, and you got fired from that. And then you figured out that if you built terminals that gave investors what they needed and gave just, just lots of data terminals, you sold those terminals to everybody on Wall Street, that you eventually could build a news organization and eventually you could be a billionaire. And you wouldn't need a bunch of organizational endorsements. You could just, I don't know, spend $500 million trying to win the Democratic primary for the presidency. And you know what you could do with that is you could buy enough ads so that you could, in fact, get into the teens even without participating in the first two primaries or having yet sat in a debate stage. Now, just hypothetically, let's hypothetically. imagine that's how you would spend your life. <laughs> Or let's imagine just hypothetically that you were collecting five and $10,000 checks and you were then able to air the kind of ads, make them beautiful. You don't have to say a lot of stuff, but you can say it a lot of times. And then all of a sudden, everybody knows Sarah I on her own. Everybody's pronouncing it right on the first try. Mm -hmm. And everybody's got you in the tip of their tongue. And you're able to pay for the kind of campaign that can win. How do you, I want to ask in our second segment, we're going to divide this thing up. How do you actually win the race like that? But connect the dots between how do you manage the power and politics and how that's connected to how you are running for office or how somebody else is running for office? And this is great. I'm actually glad you asked this question because I just taped the podcast um, today for my own podcast. Good plug. Yeah, well, podcast, but I did just come from it. Um, on It was called, the title of this week's podcast was called Winning Honest Elections. And I interviewed my new field director, Russell Lum, on this because to talk about how do we use this um, grassroots community organizing model as a way not only to win an election, but to build the social movement that we need to regain our capacity as Portlanders to shape our future based on the needs of the many rather than the few? 
for me, part of what we're trying to do through this campaign cycle is the fact that we do have so many donors that we need to engage, but we've met that at this point. For us, it's not about raising more money now. We have enough money to execute our plan and do what we need to do. Our reach right How much now, is that? We budgeted around 200000 to meet our goals, and we're continuing to raise so money. So that doesn't include a TV buy, unless maybe one ad. Um, you know, we're raising money now. We'll probably get closer to 380 by the time yeah. things are done. But and how much? But you're running public, right? We are running public. And so, how does that work? How, in ter- explain to people, remind people how it works. What you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, and then what the taxpayer does, or what you know the city coffers do. So, what we had to do to qualify was you could take up to five thousand dollars in quote unquote startup money to get your campaign up and running. And then to qualify, what you had to do was get people to give you contributions of between. Uh, five and two hundred and fifty dollars um, for you to qualify for that election. I believe our number was five hundred donors. And then once you did that, then you had to file for office. And once you hit all these um, check boxes that you had to do in terms of making sure that you were registered and all your paperwork filed, the first fifty dollars that every Portlander gives you is eligible for a six to one match from a public fund. So what that means is for each fifty dollars that Portlanders give me, the campaign actually sees three hundred and fifty dollars. If you give me above fifty dollars, that just comes to us as straight money. It's not eligible for the match. But so what we did was we built a campaign around trying to reach as many Portlanders as we could to say, could you give me up to fifty dollars? Could you give me that first fifty dollars? And we've reached Like I said, we're going to close in on 2,000 donors probably by the end of the month. We're continuing to go to each person, and what we're getting them to do is buy in to this vision of Portland's future as being crafted, again, by the people of Portland and not major donors. Because you think about when you ran for mayor and how much money you had to raise. It's painful thinking about how much money you had to raise and what time that takes and how much energy you have to spend and the trade-offs you even need to make for that. My conversation with people who are used to writing five and $10,000 checks is, hey, man, I don't need your money. I don't need it. Keep it. Let's have a frank conversation now about how you want to come to the table with your $250 check with my next door neighbor who's a school teacher who also wrote me a $250 check. What's the co-creation of those solutions going to look like when that power what impact is that having you as a candidate? You've sort of answered that question already, but anything more you'd want to say on the impact that's having you uh, on you as a candidate, the kind of mayor you think you might then be, or the impact it's having on the way the campaign conceives of itself? It's everything. It's infused. I mean, first of all, we built the campaign around this, knowing that this model was going to be there. So the people who've been working on honest elections are on my campaign. The people who are working on the open and accountable elections program are on my campaign, who were informing me for day one. There are these elections reforms coming down the pike. Should you choose to run, this would be a strategy. So we built it from day one around reaching as many voters as possible for small contributions. That changes your strategy around your messaging. It changes what you say to people. It changes how you engage in the world. It means I can have a coffee where no one can write me a check, and it still matters. Are you surprised that Ted didn't run public? No. I mean, he's in a no-win situation on that one, right? Why, why no-win? Because he wouldn't be able to get enough people. Because my, my thought was this, okay? And I even suggested, and in, in, in a matter of disclosure, like I've worked on a bunch of campaign finance reform stuff, mm-hmm. right, up to this very day, including the honest election stuff, right? I've convened the early meetings for it. And and I so I'm, I can't be trusted on this issue, or I can if you agree with me. But the uh, but I my idea 
and to, tr to pass the statewide initiative, the statewide uh, constitutional initiative, was that Ted should give all of his money, not be all of it, but all the money of his campaign coffers to the campaign for campaign finance reform, announce then he's running public, take all of your lines that, hey, we've got to make sure that government is responsive to the people, how we run for office is inextricably linked to how we govern, right? And then just, you know, it just win easily. And that's what I thought. I honestly thought that's what he should do. Uh, why? Maybe I'm wrong. It just wouldn't have worked. But why do you think that wouldn't have worked for him? Well, you have to get buy-in for your message from such a wide swath of people. And to yeah. do that, you have to co-create that message with them. And you have to be very finely tuned to their values and what they care about. you got to listen to a lot of people. you got to listen to a lot of people. And it's not just listening to a lot of people. There's some analysis that goes on, right? What are the unifiers? What brings us together? What's going to be this vision for Portland that we can share? Because we're a very divided city right now. Um, we're divided geographically, we're divided economically, we're divided racially, we're divided on a policy lens, we're divided at the neighborhood level. And we have forgotten that part of being a good uh, democracy is us being able to discuss and disagree, but that we're going to come together to solve problems. And I think that more people make that better. I don't know that the current mayor trusts community to improve outcomes because the way that he's used to doing things is from this top-down model, right? So often he gets pushback when he puts something out into the community and they blow back on him and he wonders why. Well, it's because when you try to do something apart from the community, they're not, they don't have buy-in because they haven't been there from day one. Two, it may not be the best crafted policy because you haven't listened to enough people to work out the kinks. Like you haven't beta tested and beta tested and beta tested your Understood. software. And now when you've got something, he's very resistant to even feedback at that level. So when you've got something that's rough and flawed, rather than being open and receptive and saying, I'm going to look at that and I'll take your feedback into consideration and we'll modify this. He's like, oh, you're right. And I, you're wrong. And I'm right. Right. Obviously this is good policy. We're, uh, and People who do things in community are much better at collaboration because we've had to learn to work together to get things done for a very long time. We're talking to Sarah Anarone, candidate for Portland mayor. Our interview with Sarah Anarone exclusively on cars. The... <laughs> exactly. Everybody's listening to it in their cars. Right. The, uh, uh, oh, dear. <laughs> We're talking to Sarah Anarone. This is part two of our interview. She is candidate for Portland mayor. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Sarah, for being with us. Uh, been talking a little bit about how you win this race. Being an incumbent is hard. It hasn't been tried for a while because the last couple of incumbents, in fact, the last few incumbents didn't run again. How do you beat an incumbent or do you think it's easy now because everybody's just used to having one-term mayors? Oh, it's not easy at all. We're working seven days a week and far too many hours in each one of those days. We have to build a vision for Portland that as many people as possible can buy into. And reinvigorating our democracy and making Portlanders feel like their vote, their participation, their 5 or 10 or $15 is going to make a difference so that they're invested in being a part of this is what's going to be critical. And we have this thing that we talk about in our campaign, which is it's not enough just to win this election. We've watched what happened as people like Commissioner Udaley gets elected by a thin margin and then struggles potentially on some things to govern when she's in there because it's very hard to transform existing institutions and power relations. 
What I'm hoping to do through this campaign, bolstered by public financing, this would be very difficult without public financing, but because of the public financing and the public financing match, what we're able to do is engage people in very meaningful ways to say, yes, your $5 contribution to this campaign is meaningful. It's enough. It's actually $35, which funds an entire afternoon of pizza for, right, a group of people who are stuffing envelopes. And now- Does it afford TV? Does it get you Does it get you on TV or in an internet age, do you not need TV ads? Can you do it all by giving money to Mark Zuckerberg and by knocking on doors? Our strategy does not involve a lot of TV. Yeah. It involves a lot of direct voter contact. It's going to be extensive canvassing in untapped pockets of the city. It's going to be – we're using some of the most – I feel a little old. I haven't used to be feeling old until you have a team of all millennials and younger who are laughing at you because you use the word Rolodex and they think it's an app for Android phones. But it's this notion that we are going to Is use... Is it an app for Android? Uh, yeah, don't even ask me. <laughs> I was talking to a salesman. Come on. He knows what a Rolodex is. So, um, But it's this notion that we're using all of these tools, these direct voter context tools that are uh, that are integrated with the voter data, that are integrated with social media, that are integrated with the marketing networks and analyses so that we're connecting with voters in meaningful, targeted, direct ways. And that, so what does that look like? That looks like people posting on Facebook, I really like Sarah Anarone. That means you guys doing campaign videos and boosting them. What does that look like so you get it at scale? Because I used to have arguments with campaign staffs who would underinvest in field and underinvest also in social media, right? And one of the reasons, I think, was because they got a cut of the deal on mail and they got a cut of the deal on TV, right? But I will also say, as a candidate, when I did TV ads— a lot of people saw the TV ads mm-hmm. and there was value there. But, I, you know, you're running a campaign now. It's, the social media landscape has changed a lot in the last eight years. What does it actually look like? And when you think about um, the likely primary voter, which you know as well, it is a lot of mail. We do have a lot of – we're already sending out mailers all the time. So there's a lot of direct mail. There's targeted direct mail. It's by who do you donate to? Who do you listen to? Who do you support in elections? What are the issues that matter to you? I'm talking a lot with voters um, by mail already. We're talking to them through social media. We're getting a lot of earned media. We, we've put out a lot of really good policy. I have a podcast. I have a website. It's sarah2020.com, and you can visit it. But there are extensive policy packages there where you can look, and we've crafted that with community members. So we're getting into the community and talking and building the coalition and creating the information relays and the community relays and the house parties. Um, Sometimes I do two or three in a day. We hosted community conversations. It's an aggressive grassroots campaign, very traditional on the front end, but on the back end, very data-driven, strategic, targeted messaging. And then what do you send to them? Like little videos? We send them letters. We send them requests for money. We send them messages that we have people texting out of the office at different times of day all the time on different things. And I can't get too far in the weeds because honestly, I don't understand all of it. But I get the I get the activism sort of building, right? I get the movement building portion of it and and appreciate it. What I what I don't know is if that gets enough to scale that it gets you to all of the primary voters or if that gets you enough of a base of chatterers that the chatterers help you get to to all the primary voters. And it's that step I'm I'm wondering, right? It's the recruitment gets you people to help, right? But if you get your volunteer list to what you said is 2,000 people now, 600 people now, would you say? Well, our donor list is at, we're rounding 2,000 Okay, right so now, let's say you double it, right? Yeah. Let's say you get to 4,000 donors. Right. That's you're gonna need more than four thousand votes to win this primary. How many votes you need to win the primary? 
Over 100,000. Okay. So if you need 100,000 votes, how do you get the other 96? That will figure all four of those thousand people, or those, you know, those 4,000 people, they'll each have two friends, right? So that gets you, let's say, 12,000, right? Maybe some of them post on Facebook. So that gets you to 20,000, maybe 25,000, right? That's pretty good. That's not like a lot of people. It's still these 75,000 people. You got to reach them. How do you reach those people? And, and, and the reason, what at stake at this is not just me being a dork. What's at stake at this is how public financing works. I understand how large checks work to buy TV ads to reach those 100,000 people. I understand it very well. I understand how movements work to get a lot of volunteers to do some inspiring stuff. What I'm trying to connect the dots and figure out is how you get, using an activist model, that additional 75,000 people. Well, you're asking me to give away my strategy on the radio. <laughs> so I keep hedging slightly oh, because that. That. my opponents might be listening to this. Sure. Um, and I have to acknowledge that. And that's why I'm being slightly um, dicey. We have a plan to yeah. reach those folks. Yeah. Um, it does involve it's video. Secret. It's not that it's secret, but we do want to deploy it on our terms and on our timeline. Could you please just... Start listing not, your campaign plan dates when things are going out, your primary issues you're going to be pushing on each one, positions you're taking, places you know you don't have to do that. Let's put it this way. Um, there may be some TV ads later along the way. I'm not going to commit to when they will sure. or won't be coming down the pike. But it's not – this isn't going to be a TV won or lost campaign. There is going to be a lot of direct voter compact, an intense field campaign um, which is already underway. Our field director um, has extensive background. He was on the Bernie 2015-2016 uh, in Iowa and uh, California campaign, so he understands the ground game. We're going to have a very um, extensive ground game. We will do a lot of social media and targeted advertising um, online. There will be probably some TV. There will be a lot of direct mail. You talked about uniting the city, bringing the city together, that, that you mentioned Chloe Udaly wins with a thin margin and then using your terms had some struggles because, well, maybe she didn't have a full consensus buy-in on the things she wanted to do. Or a coalition at her back. It's not about buy-in. It's about do you have enough people so that you can fail without failing abysmally? Like or can you fail harder, faster, and still have your community there to surround you? That helps. That helps. That helps. It's almost a partial answer to my question. When I, I follow you on Twitter – Right. I watch the mayor, too, and other people. And I and I see your messaging and you seem very attuned to let's call it the Portland activist base. Right. You seem to really listen to and communicate with, spend time around the Portland activist base from a mo and, that, and that's a broad. That's not like one stripe of person. Right. Uh, how do you translate that experience? and that expertise to communicating to the other 75,000 people who aren't the in the activist base or directly connected to the activist base? What, what do you got for them? I think you have to look at things like the Portland Clean Energy Fund and how did we pass that? How did Commissioner Hardesty get elected? How did Commissioner Udaly get elected? I mean, all of these people. Well, with Udaly, she benefited in part from people being pissed at Steve because he did the road fee. Right. And I think got unfairly attacked for doing the road fee because Labor had been asking somebody to show courage to do the road fee for year after year after year after year. And nobody did. And he finally did. He lost an election maybe because of it. But that's simplified. But I would say that Chloe had that at her back. Well, Plus she had housing at her back. I have a very un I have an incumbent with some pretty unfavorable. I'm not saying you can't win. <laughs> yeah. I, but that's my point. I mean, in some ways, it's not altogether unlike Commissioner Daly in I terms of the incumbent's favorability. And also in terms of, again, this notion when you, you talk about the Portland activist base, 
those folks know how to work hard to get things done. They are organizers. They are the people who helped Commissioner Daly do rent protections. They are the people who helped Portland Clean Energy Fund pass. These are the people who know how to make transformative policy work through hard work, sweat, equity, and how to transform that into movements that grow. And this is one of the things that we have been able to accomplish. Why am I ostensibly the front runner in the race? I have more money right now than Ted Wheeler. And I have, if you were to look at it right now, apart from name recognition, there's not a lot of reasons for people to choose him over Or who's ha- ca- received the most votes having run for mayor? Um, he received them before in the most that's, votes. That's true. He wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not here to say who the front runner is, but I like what you're saying here. But do you see what I'm saying? Sure. In some ways, we it's our rigs to lose right now. And all we have to do is stay on track to execute our strategy, which I wouldn't have entered this race if I didn't have a strategy to win. I didn't need another showing like last time. In 2016, the point was to try to make a better mayor by forcing Mayor Wheeler to have a conversation pushing him through to a runoff so that he would have to have a conversation about the future of urban development in the city. He was not forced to do that. He was not held accountable at that time. And I think that's made him a worse mayor, frankly, because he wasn't forced to carve out good policy with the people. And so he's operated unilaterally ever since. And I believe that that's why he's been largely a failure. And the things that he's tried to put forward is because he's not connected enough to the right people and not listening to the right people. What's the biggest critique you hear? Maybe you already said it. But what's the biggest critique you hear about the current mayor when you're out either on the doorstep or at one of the house parties you're doing? It doesn't make it doesn't look like in four years anything's gotten better. Things look like they're getting worse. What would I can ask Ted his response to that? What are the things that concern you most that have gotten worse? Portlanders are losing their spirit of optimism in the sense that this is a special place where good things that happen get that can transform how cities work in amazing ways. Like we are a second tier city that should be largely unremarkable in terms of our economy, our population. But because we've When you say second tier, what do you mean? Like not as good as other places or just not as big as other places? Like objective economic standards in terms of when they look at the top you know, we're a small city. We're like the twenty sixth largest, twenty fifth or twenty sixth largest city in the US. And I love that about us. This is a place where we're still at a scale where we have a robust enough economy to make strategic investments for our future. And yet our population is not so big like Los Angeles or New York, where it's hard to scale up. We can do things here that transform the lives of Portlanders. But I also understand that we have this outsized reputation around the world. People look to us to lead. And if I put sharrows on the ground, jargon, those are the little arrows that say this is where bikes can go alongside cars. You put those so there are people... Places aren't strodes. Yeah, we put sharrows so you don't have strodes. That if you put that down and call that cycling infrastructure, then you know the governor's office from Guam comes here and they take those home and they put those in. And they think, look at what we've done. We's done like Portland. This city's supposed to stand for something. This city is supposed to be exemplary in terms of how we make a good place. It's it's what it's what we're built for. And what we haven't thought about is the fact that so many people are left out of that equation. And what does it really mean? How can you call yourself a livable city when you have so many people? Four thousand and any given night sleeping outside. Like, why are we not tapping into the community potential? When I look at a church up, the Nazarene church up at uh, Powell, where it crosses 205, and they're trying to build 15 tiny houses, and the city of Portland's trying to charge them 20000 in impact fees. And I think we should be giving them 20000 to get these people off the street for the year. 
where's the disconnect? I believe that Portlanders want to do better. I believe I've mobilized my community. So let's stick with housing for a moment. Let's let's stick let's stick with housing for a moment. And the and you said homelessness. I said housing. They're related to different things. Uh, And how that connects to this idea of Portland being an exemplar, that Portland being say, hey, we're supposed to figure things out here. This is actually supposed to be a laboratory of like place development. And we're supposed to figure it out, not just wait for somebody else. And we sure as heck shouldn't be lagging behind it. It's kind of embarrassing that we got some real crap that we don't seem to be making progress on. That's a, that's a legitimate case to run for mayor and to serve as the mayor. What would you do differently? What were your critiques of Ted's or what would you do now to impact housing? Because it's like, well, we'll add another $50 million to the pot and build a few more units. You know, that's one answer, but maybe there's a better one. You have to look at a across the spectrum of affordability. And the biggest complaint that I hear from people out in the streets is affordable, like with a capital A, like the housing and urban development says this amount of families. officially affordable. Officially affordable. Let me, I can pay for it. And Portlanders are saying, that doesn't even come close to what I can afford. So wages aren't keeping up. We haven't thought carefully about the ecosystem, if you will, of housing in terms of what are the transportation costs that a family has every month. That's $400, $500 maybe for a family. Well, for people who are living close in, that's lower, right? So why are we not thinking about increasing density closest to the core? Well, in part, we've done it in places where we can, but then we've allowed this NIMBYism, right, to go unchecked in terms of, yeah, not you can build that over there, but not here, right? Why is the Eastmoreland golf course, right? Why are we not allowed to think about well, maybe part of that should be housing because we actually spent $1.65 billion in transportation close to the urban core. We've got a light rail line station that goes right there, but yet East Moreland doesn't have to have multifamily housing. That's a conversation that has gone unchecked when really the mayor of Portland should be saying, enough. We need multifamily housing here, and we need a lot of it, and we need it fast. We've allowed the nimbyism to drive the conversation about urban development, and we're having these fights that are taking four and five years, like residential infill and better housing by design, trying to update and make sure that the comprehensive plan has enough housing for everyone, and everyone's to look at East Portland. Well, East Portland is not the most efficient place for us to put all the new housing. That's a long way from town in terms of it's trying to get people. Long way from services, long way from jobs. It's expensive infrastructure. Do you realize how many gains we could make if we put a lot of housing within three miles of downtown? It's a huge climate action driver. And if someone's going to call themselves a climate champion, you can't talk about being a climate champion than not talk about housing density adjacent to the core oh, in places it, that are. It turns out you can. It turns out you absolutely can talk about a climate cha- champion and then mostly build infrastructure for cars and then build housing wherever the heck in suburbs. I don't know if it's congruent. Well, I don't think you should be able to do that because <laughs> hypocrisy fair. is That's bad. Fair. So the. Uh, how do you, if you're going to name the three biggest missed opportunities that this mayor has whiffed on when it comes to housing, when it comes to building more dense housing near the urban core, right? Was it, well, he didn't wave his magic wand to make that happen. He didn't use the right pixie dust. What were the missed opportunities? It's not just about pixie dust. I mean, that makes it sound like I'm being unreasonable and don't understand how policies get, get uh, made. That's not what I said. 
Well, in some ways it is because as someone who's been on the other side of that dais fighting for these housing policies for three, four, five years, some leadership from the mayor's office in corralling the votes and helping shape yeah, that's what's what I'm going saying. on what are the, the, council, what, are the, what are the missed things? What are the chances that he could have? Do some leadership. Talk to your colleagues. Figure out what they need and want so we can get some anti-displacement up front. Let's think about the things that our people need and want. Proposals that were made that didn't pass because, you th- because the mayor didn't use the lever of his office sufficiently to get them it's passed? It's not even about that they won't get passed. They're going to get passed because we always beat the mayor regardless of him. He's not been either there, here, nor there. He's an obstacle to us doing things faster when he's not helping. For me, what I want to do is actually help the people of my city move things faster that are going to be pro-social and have a benefit in achieving our goals. I believe that the activists in housing and transportation have the answers. I don't. But I know enough to listen to them and then empower them so you can get in and get out of here as fast as possible instead of jamming things up on just through complete lack of attention to what's happening. The you made reference to NIMBY's blocking uh, urban infill and density efforts. Are you concerned that moving to district-based elections for city council, moving to either a strong mayor or an unlocked bureaucrat to run the whole city, would increase, and then district-based city councilors, would increase balkanization, would increase sort of neighborhoodism when it comes to each city councilor saying, I don't need to worry about the whole city. All I got to do is worry about my own little neighborhood. I think we need to have a careful conversation about this as a city. I actually argued with Mark Zussman, who's the publisher of Willamette Week, editor, I guess, who both now, I think. Is he both? He said to me, Sarah, you're so strident on so many policies, and on this one you seem to equivocate. Why is that? You must be BSing me because you you you're know it all and everything. Why do you have uncertainty around this? And it's partially what you're talking about. We have to be very careful with the commission form of government reforms so as not to jump out of the frying pan into the fire, I think. And what I want us to do is use the charter review process to deliberate around the future of governance in our city. And you can look, I put actually a policy online, uh, sarah2020.com slash goodgov, that talks about thinking critically through um, some of our, what is the role of neighborhoods in decision-making? What is the role and how will city council do decision-making? What should a mix of district representation versus at-large representation look like? We should probably examine the feasibility of a consolidated government between Multnomah County and city of Portland. It's something that doesn't come up a lot, but it actually seems to me when you're thinking about in this era where increasingly local I want to say localities because I can't say a city, it's a city and county, but where local places are looking at limited resources, especially from our federal government. We don't know what's happening in 2020. We don't know how this is going to work out. We know that our state is saddled with trying to think things through like education and health care. Does it make sense for us to have a consolidated government to help with things like public safety, housing, and infrastructure? No, by the way, this is maybe the favorite answer I've received on this question, because to me, it is more complex. It's a trickier thing. And, and my bad answer, your answer is better than mine. My bad answer is it doesn't matter as much if you move, if you change the form of government, but you don't do something else to ensure that we are, in fact, not balkanized. If you change neighborhood associations, but do, don't do something to make sure we are taking real citizen input and giving citizens real power, yeah. then what you're doing is, you know, reform change is not really reform. Yeah. Uh, what should I have asked you that I didn't? You need to ask me, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Rethinking public safety. Let's talk yeah. about that. Let's talk about the police. Because right. you, you can't have a conversation about the mayor's office and not talk about the police. 
It's absolutely fair. I was going to ask you what bureaus you'd run, and the and presumably one of the police bureau. Give me your. There been there's been conversation, and this will be our last one. Uh, there's been conversation about changing the culture in the police bureau since Neil Goldschmidt was a city councilor and named it as a top priority when he was running for mayor. Okay, that was when I was like a small child. Now you're running for mayor. People have still been talking about it. What would you do to change the culture of the police bureau if, in fact, you think it needs to be changed? I do think that the culture of the police bureau needs to be changed, and I think in part it comes from our city. But we have to make a commitment that this is going to be something similar to recycling where it takes us a generation, right, to make these changes over time. We have to build the plan. Until China have... stops taking our recycling and then we have to well, – sorry. But I'm thinking about the bottle bill in 20 years ago yeah. when we started thinking about these things. We knew that it would take us a generation to work through these yeah. transformations. You can't say we're going to be anti-racist and have a city that's a sanctuary that's, city. That's a, smart, that's a smart point. So what are the one or two things we need to do right now? I believe community oversight with teeth is what we need. As the DOJ leaves town, we need to see that as an opportunity to craft truly, um, I use the word formidable, but community oversight with real teeth. The police union should not get to have the final say in how policing is done in the city. The police union should get to to advocate for their workers, but we should be able to fight as Portlanders to be able to get rid of bad cops. If we cannot get rid of bad cops, then we will never ever build trust in so our police. So the police union won't endorse you. How um, is that impacting your relationships with the firefighters union? Here's some of the nerdy stuff that people can get here. One of the things that has been worked out is that the firefighters union, police union like to move together. And candidates in Portland, you know, might want to go after the police bureau, but we usually want to have the support of the fire bureau. How are you managing those politics? I actually really am happy about things like Portland Street Response, and I'm thankful for Commissioner Hardesty's leadership on that and the fact that we could potentially be using our firefighters more effectively without their arms, right? The fact that they're unarmed public safety people out in the community, thinking about if our fire bureau was operating more efficiently on things like addressing the health aspects of the of the needs of people out in Portland, right? The, um, the Portland Street Response model that's up in Lentz and how maybe we could be expanding that potentially, so that police, armed police, aren't the first responders when people call 911 automatically for people in mental health crisis. I don't like when the police show up on scene and then 13 seconds later, someone in mental health crisis is dead. Yeah. No, um, a huge. It, it, the data is striking, right? The percentage of calls to police are mental health phone calls and the calls to firefighters that are fire calls. Do you know that stat? Here's a fun stat for you. Do you know that one? What percentage of calls to the Portland Fire Bureau are to put out a house fire? Uh, less than one percent. I think last time I saw it was three percent. Okay, and maybe it might be less now. I don't know, but it, you know, the fire bureau now is mostly healthcare delivery system. Yeah. What's your last word? My last word is my name is Sarah Ianarone. I believe you should vote for me for Portland mayor. Visit me at sarah2020.com and uh, learn more about me and my policies. And I do encourage you to support this campaign because if anything, we've got a chance as Portlanders to get that guy out of office and get a people's mayor.